uh, is in your hands. And we ask that you would uh, protect uh, everyone today, especially uh, those members of our congregation who are on the road now or who might be uh, in the future uh, trying to get here this day, that you would protect them um, and that you would bring them to your house of worship safely. We ask uh, now, as we open your word, that uh, you would give us insight into it, that you would help us um, uh, get beyond um, uh, trying to figure out details, but get the main message of what you're trying to teach us about who you are uh, and your plan for us and your plan for the world, <laughs> that you would help us to see your, your mighty history of redemptive acts and how that history culminates in the judgment of the world and uh, the public proclamation by all creation that you are the Lord God. Uh, help us to be awed. Help us to uh, have that sense of your glory this day as we study your word. Amen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. So last week uh, we saw this crescendo of heavenly worship that John witnessed uh, in heaven in his vision. We particularly noted the central focus of chapter 5 on Christ, um, who in uh, the, the final rings of praise is acknowledged as, as God. He is worshipped with the same terms as God on the throne is. Uh, the central dilemma of chapter 5, if we recall, uh, or the, the opening dilemma, was that uh, God in his hand had a scroll with seven seals that could not be opened by any creature. No creature in heaven on earth was found worthy, save one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And what we uh, particularly spent a lot of time on was thinking about how this lion, this conquering king, appears not in the form uh, of, of, of some uh, brute strength animal, but in the form of a slain lamb, uh, slain but standing with perfect strength and wisdom. And then he's praised for being slain, that it is his being slain that makes him worthy to open the seals. Today we start to see what the opening of those seals means uh, for people living on earth. In one sense, the description of the heavenly scene last week begs the question, if the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Christ, if Christ is the king uh, by his being slain, uh, why are Roman armies and forces of chaos so much in evidence? So let me read chapter 6, and then we'll dig into the opening of these seals. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. 
When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by the wild beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone's, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, uh, in this chapter, we see um, probably one of the most famous symbols from the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're so called. And the identity of um, three of them seems pretty clear, but... Who is this first rider on the white horse? Uh, this white rider who had a bow and a crown coming out, conquering and to conquer. What are our options? Do we have options? <laughs> okay, so for us, white horse... Good guy. <laughs> yeah, we think of white um, as good. He doesn't say he's wearing a white hat, yes. No. So can bad guys wear, ride white horses? Okay, so he's, he's given, he has a crown, all right? So he's some kind of, of ruler. Who is this? <laughs> this is a great Sunday school. So Jesus, um, yeah, he opened the seal. But one, um, one reason for maybe thinking uh, that this is Christ conquering, um, 
later on in the book of Revelation, we get a rider on the white horse again. So this is from Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Um, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes forth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So, that white and other, yeah, that seems like pretty good logic. All right, so, so now, um, yeah, let's think about the opposite side. So, uh, sometimes you're known by the company you keep. <laughs> so, here we've got four horsemen, three of which, uh, war, famine, pestilence, death. Um, yeah, well, do we want to see Christ riding out with these guys? Mary. Yeah, conquering, uh, and, uh, you know, he came out conquering and to conquer, so that sort of, you know, uh, grammatically you don't need that and to conquer, but it's doing it for that emphasis. It's, this is a conqueror, you know, conquest. All right? So as, as Ronnie said, we've got the opposite options here. So how many of us, right? yeah, I want to see hands. I'm doing, I'm doing a James Glover, you know? Old dogs can learn new tricks. Um, all right, hands. How many of you think this white rider is, uh, is Christ, is a good figure? All right. How many of you think he's a bad figure? All right, a lot of you aren't voting. Uh, come on. Let's do this again. How many good? Um, all right, so uh, well, let's throw that option out there. So if it's a good guy but not Christ, who would it be? Okay. Um, it could be a sort of the church going out, conquering and to conquer. An angel. Okay. Uh, let's do our vote again, and then we'll come back to this. So how many think it's, it's Christ or a good guy? All right. So we got one, six. How many of you think it's uh, it's bad guy? One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, we're split down the middle. Um, all right, well, let's think. All right, so what are the arguments um, for him being a bad guy? And, and Mark just brought up a great one that um, we're told um, that uh, the Antichrist will come or, you know, um, false, there will be false Christ. Um, let me see, I wrote down, um, let's see if I can find it real quick. In um, the synoptics, uh, the Gospels, it actually sort of describes similar woes befalling humanity, you know, war, famine, um, but it also prefaces those with um, there will be false Christ. So let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, uh, so Mark, for example, Mark 13, 5, Jesus began to say, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead you many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, there will be famines, 
these are but the beginning of birth pangs. So sort of a similar, we get similar woes, but you know, before those woes, we have this Jesus warning, don't be deceived, they're going to be false Christ, false teachers. Okay? And, and you know, not, not that we're going to settle whether it's a good guy or a bad guy, but all of these four are clearly under the, the direction of God, and that's something I want us to wrestle with uh, more deeply in a moment. Yeah, Mary. Yeah, each of these creatures are, you know, giving the commands. Uh, they're the ones issuing, calling these riders to come forth. Um, so we see their participation in it. So, uh, you know, they're actively involved in calling forth this destruction. Um, any other? Uh, so we, on the one hand, how, how would Christ fit into that, though? Or an angel? Um, so do we see what this angel conquering and, and to conquer is that a good kind of conquest, uh, or is it uh, our conquest as you know we think of you know, Genghis Khan or someone uh, conquering? Okay, yeah. So we can sort of see this, and it, I mean, there's some a way you can sort of see a logic if we sort of take the conquest as negative. You know, a, a conqueror goes out. You know, conquests are not peaceful things. That leads to war. Wars lead to famine. Famine leads to outbreaks of disease and death. I mean, you can sort of see uh, a logic in the sort of how these unfold. Come here. Yeah, it's, it's moving toward this teleology, this final purpose. Um, so, uh, and again, I want us to, to keep that in mind. Um, but I just want to sort of start off by saying, you know, the identity of the white rider, you can, I can make a good case Either way. Um, and literally, this week, I picked up one book, and it made a great argument for the white writer being Christ. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and then my next book I picked up, it made a great argument for it not being Christ. Yeah, wait. <laughs> but um, the emphasis is on you know whether we see it, the conquest, um, and uh, I didn't bring it with me, but um, Eugene Peterson's got this great... Uh, we don't imagine, if this, this first writer is Christ, we don't imagine this conquest taking place, uh, Christ adopting different means to conquer. It's sort of like, he's, uh, the way Peterson views it, you have this picture of the church going forth, conquering with the sort of means that we've seen in chapter 5, that it's you know, conquest by sacrifice. Um, you know, the, the church is being spread um, by its willingness to, to serve unto death, to witness, even though they're persecuted. It's that sort of paradoxical form of conquest. Um, but, uh, or we can see it uh, in light of it's this, you know, false Christ going out and, and creating all this mess uh, in the church. But either way, these uh, riders are clearly under the control of God. I mean, this is clearly Jesus is breaking these seals, unleashing these things upon the earth. Conquest, war, famine, pestilential death. These riders are all unleashed by Christ. Why? So, I mean, that creates so 
creates a theological problem, maybe. Um, theological discomfort. But here we have, you know, the, the most sort of horrible uh, calamities that can befall man, and they're all in being attributed directly to the action of God in this chapter. So this is the righteous outpouring of God's wrath on humanity. Yeah, so it, again, this is act of, this act of judgment. Um, you know, through these tribulations, bringing out his church and condemning and destroying uh, the world. Happy with that? <laughs> Are these um, war, famine, pestilential death, conquest? These are all part of our reality now. So is this speaking of some future time? Are these four entities uh, a future? Or is this an ongoing reality in our present church age? <laughs> well, I think it's more than, I mean, we can say that all these things exist now. Um, and I'm pretty confident saying all these things will exist in the future. But so how, as a church, how, are we supposed to just read it and sort of see it as time off? Or, and again, think in terms of, you know, the first here is this, this are going to be persecuted Christians, you know. Why this message to them? Okay, so uh, um, so let's see. Or do we see some kind of chronology? Because in the fifth one, it sort of seems like not yet. Um, you know, you, you get this address to uh, you know how long? Well, we'll got to wait a little longer. So there seems to be sort of some kind of progression. Yeah, the sixth one, and, and this is something we can look at uh, more closely in a little bit. I mean, it's got, you know, if it's Gospels, but even beyond that, the Old Testament. If you want to look at stock Old Testament language, what will the last day be like? You know, moon turning into blood, all those kinds of things, or, or boom, boom, boom here. So maybe the sixth day refers to a final judgment. Well, what about the first four? Let's, let's just stick with them for now. That's hard. Um, but, but let's maybe think in terms of, all right, um, perhaps it is referring to one, a specific sort of unleashing of these four plagues. But these are four things we can definitely say uh, we experience all of those in our world now. Um, so, and, and Christians of the era, they're, you know, John first wrote this for, they experience those as well. So, what comfort, encouragement would having this picture of, of Christ unleashing these things bring to them and to us? Yeah, it's this emphasis on what we feel so much right now as real is not, uh, or, or we see them. It, you know, these things are visible to us, but there is this reality um, that these things are but for a time that they will come to an end, that they are for God's purpose. Um, and again, it's this, in a sense, the same message we saw early on. Endure, overcome, you know, uh, you know, keep going. The reward is worth the pain suffered now. 
Yeah, and there's a way that I think the point is that Christians in every age can say, this is now. That seems to be the kind of moment we, we're supposed to be living in, that come quickly. Um, and we ex, you know, we're supposed to live with that kind of expectancy, um, that, that these things have a limit to them. And that limit is, is, is the end is coming soon. Yeah, and um, well, before we get to, I, I want to turn to the fifth and, and see, look at, take a, a, a longer look at this fifth seal before we move to that one. Anything else we want to say about these first four? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, that, you know, uh, our, our sight is going to give us a world of chaos. Um, what is, you know, the stuff in Libya, you know, what's going on? Um, financial markets, housing markets, uh, you know, environment. Our, you know, we look at it as a world in chaos if we're just looking by sight. Yeah. And so we have that picture here. So, you know, um, whether or not we, we see these as part of some, you know, the future final day of judgment, uh, at least the first four, you know, these are pe things people in every age experience and that we, are, we have to live through. And we have to live through, as Bill says, looking at them differently than the way the, our world looks at them. Mark. Yeah, this seems to be, and again, well, the fifth seal really brings this out. This really seems to be something, the emphasis on something that um, Christians have to endure. Oh, so on the other hand. Yeah, okay, no bids. So nothing else on the first four, the four riders. Uh, you, know, you know, the last three, pretty clearly war and, and uh, famine and death or pestilence or pestilential death. Um, all right, so this fifth seal. Here we have the souls of the slain under this altar. Why are they there? What, is that, what does that mean? That's kind of a weird. The souls of the slain under the altar. All right, y'all got to stop reading footnotes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I cheat, so why not y'all? <laughs> okay, so if we're in, interpreting altar and thinking Old Testament, we know that, that the foot of the altar is a catch basin where the blood of the sacrifices uh, would collect. So this would sort of uh, you know, give an indication that... Um, the souls of these slain are sacrifices, in a sense. Yes. So we we've have we've been pictured, given this great picture in the previous chapter of a you know a lamb that was slain uh, and slain to ransom um, his people, and they then are enjoined to be priests and a kingdom uh, in in um, in modeling themselves on him, Sandy. Yeah, the protection. Um, you know, they're, and uh, to think of it, they're not on the altar, they're under the altar. You know, it's just sort of the altar is protecting them in this sense. The altar is covering them. So maybe the thing is not to see them as the sacrifices, but the one who, the ones 
who the blood off this altar has run off onto them. So rather than seeing them being the blood that's at the foot of the altar, seeing them as being the ones for whom the blood has been shed and has fallen upon and they're protected by the altar. Um, what a picture that is uh, to sort of see, you know, even though um, uh, someone's destroyed their body, that clearly their souls are protected here. What do we make for their, um, their, their cry for vengeance? Is it right for them to cry out for vengeance like this? I mean, uh, think of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, you know, crying out, Lord, forgive them. Isn't that what people should be doing? What do we make of this? Uh, I, I read something I read, quoted someone else saying that this was not a Christian prayer. Hmm, really? It's uh, a pretty bold statement. Uh, what do we make? Yeah, that, and in a sense, we could see this as quoting one of those psalms um, that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, psalm you know, 79 is one that the language is very similar to some of what we see here. Um, what do we make of this call? Yeah, James. Okay, so we, we we're beyond the, while, while they're on earth, there's time to repent. That, that's gone. Now it's time for judgment. Yeah, that this isn't. This is a cries for vengeance, uh, vengeance for God, rather than sort of, boy, I, you know, these people got me. You go get them. You know, to see them as God's enemies, and that it's God's righteous vengeance that's coming to pass. Mary, Mary, long same lines. Yeah, to sort of see um, the, this call, you know, and and notice the response that. Rest a little longer. You know, it's not time yet. Um, but it's, you know, the emphasis isn't on, it's not time yet. I'm going to judge them some more. The number of the fellow servants, their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. <laughs> You're shaking your head. <laughs> yeah, what a way to view history. Uh, rather than to sort of count up, you know, uh, successes or triumphs or times that, oh, peace. You know, we love those periods. To sort of think of it as, let's multiply martyrs. Um, you know, let's put ourselves in situations where we, we can be martyred. And again, to think of this being addressed to those um, who are, at the time they're reading this, very likely to be killed for the sake of, of bearing Christ's name. Um, and how that puts them, again, to view history this way. Suddenly you go from, I've failed, you know, I lost my life, to, I, you know, I'm, I'm the star of the stage. You know, I'm not some, you know, wiped out. That, that I'm not an integral part of the plan. That's the plan. <laughs> That's how the conquest is taking place, um, is through the death of, of those serving Christ um, and this willingness to die. Until the end, you have famine, you have warfare, you have murder, you have pestilence. Um, you know, that's going to be the reality until 
those things are done away with. So we take comfort in the fact that there's a limit to these things. These things are, are, are going to be present realities for us, but we know there's a, a goal to it, that they're not purposeless, um, that there is amidst a world we experience and perceive as chaos, that there is rationality. And it's this paradoxical kind of conquest that the church is being spread through sacrifice rather than force of military arms. Okay, so um, uh, again, there, there are lots of ways people have tried to interpret the six seals, but the sixth one uh, very much um, seems to point to something future. So whether or not we see the first four as being part of some future or some ongoing reality, the sixth one um, seems to be this, this final judgment. And um, as I said earlier, all this kind of stock Old Testament imagery about the, the last day, the day of God's final judgment, is in here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. That is a quote straight from Isaiah, pretty much. Um, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the rocks of the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So why are these people fleeing and hiding? And how do we, how do we understand by this wrathful Lamb? <laughs> Yeah, that it starts off, kings of the earth, yeah, bring those guys down. <laughs> the way we're all revolutionaries. Generals, yeah, you know. Yeah, and some people even view the, the kind of heavenly scene described before, um, uh, rather than sort of talking about, you know, physical realities that the literal stars are going to fall, to see um, this undoing, uh, this, this uh, dissolution of being a dissolution of human power, you know, because again, there are Old Testament texts that sort of speak of great people as, you know, stars in the heaven. Um, you know, these are the bright lights, even we have that, you know, bright leading lights of our age to sort of think of, you have it in symbolic language, and then you have it spelled out in sort of the totality of, of human power structures from the highest to the lowest is going to uh, dissolve in fear of this coming wrath. What else would we say about this image? Why, why, is, why so much wrath? Why are these people fleeing and hiding? I like this, you know, rocks fall on us. <laughs> Mark. Yeah, they're finally going to acknowledge the kingdom that's existed in their midst all along. Um, you know, but now, that, that, it's, it's not that, you know, as we saw the, in the la previous chapters, the kingdom is already there. But it's also not yet. And we're sort of seeing that again. It's, it's now, 
but there's going to be this culmination of it. Um, and, and for these people, you know, to finally understand themselves to be objects of God's wrath when they're not. And I, I, I really like the sort of juxtaposition between the souls of those slain under the altar and the fist seal. You know, as Sandy said, you know, this sort of image of them being protected. And here these folks, you know, calling on rocks and mountains to fall, you know, trying to find any kind of sense of, of barrier from the wrath of God um, to sort of see again. It's the only reason these saints are there because the wrath of God has gone on to that altar. It's gone on to the son, the lamb who's been slain. That's ransomed these people um, who were uh, in debt to God. And, and for these people, that wrath is falling directly on them or is about to fall directly on them. Yeah, to everything you think is firm and real is dissolving. I mean, that's the sort of the picture that it's this undoing of everything, you know, that we take for granted as being ongoing and future going realities. All of that is being done, undone in the heavenly realm and on the earthly realm as well. Jerry. Yeah, and we saw in the last chapter um, that, you know, there's going to be this moment everyone is going to acknowledge that this lamb is worthy. Um, you know, that, that yes, that you are indeed God and or subjects of your wrath, yeah, James. to cover, to, to conceal oneself. And, you know, with this, everything that, that, again, everything that we put so much confidence in is all that sort of disappearing. <laughs> what? Wait. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to be impossible to play hide and seek on that day. Uh, Okay, well, we've hit the end of our, our time, but, but I want to emphasize, you know, whether we see this as, um, as, as something in the future or something totally in the future or something that, you know, we're in the midst of now going to, the emphasis is in this chapter on the sovereignty of God, that it's God in control of all these things, and God is bringing them to, the, to, to their end, and the end is unleashing the wrath of God, and you know, it gives us a role in that to to see how we are to to live and be the church, conquering not through the world's means, but conquering through sacrifice. Um, but it also see shows us um, how terrible the wrath of God is, and our need for a covering. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, uh, how could a good God do this? Um, and to sort of, we, we can only, from our human terms, only understand it from the, from the end. And the end is, it's being done for judgment that we so rightfully deserve. That this wrath of, of God is being poured out on all. Except some have been covered by the altar. And that God himself has taken that wrath that should have fallen upon them, upon himself. That he's drank that cup of wrath to the very dregs. Uh, all right, so uh, if, if that doesn't enjoin us to worship in the next hour, I'm not sure um, 
anything I can say will. Um, but let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, uh, we confess that we um, are sinful people, that we are deserving of your wrath and judgment. But as this uh, chapter so um, imaginatively engages our mind to see this great picture of your uh, saints under the altar, um, under the place where blood is shed, and it's there that you have protected them, and that uh, those who've given their life for your namesake uh, haven't done so um, heedlessly, haven't done so um, uh, and, and for no good reason, but that it's by those means that you're bringing your kingdom uh, on earth, that it's through those Baffling means to us the, the opposite of what we think a, a conquering king should, should bring forth his kingdom. Not by being slain, but by slaying. But that's how your kingdom has come, by, by the blood of your saints, of the martyrs, of the church. Um, help us to have that understanding of our role, that we're not here to hide behind uh, power and riches and earthly comforts, but we are here to testify to the coming wrath of the righteous king and to testify that we too are deserving of that wrath, but we have been covered by the altar on which his blood was shed for us to ransom a people from every nation and every tongue on the face of this earth. And we can say along with the saints under that altar, how long and come quickly, trusting in the one who is bringing all things to pass by his sovereign power. Help us to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.